There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 63. Today in the show, we're exploring the mysterious world of predicting deer movement. And joining us is Mark Drury of Drury Outdoors. Enjoy. Now, before we kick things off, I have to give you a brief warning. After we recorded this interview with Mark, my co-host Dan said we have to give the listeners fair warning because their minds are about to be blown after listening to this. There really is just so much information you're about to hear. You really need a paper and pen to take notes. So take a second, go grab some stuff, get ready, and here we go. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear and today we've got an interview that I just can't wait to get to because our guest Mark Drury is a man with some serious whitetail insight and if you're not familiar and I'd be shocked if you're not Mark Drury is the co-host of a number of different hunting tv shows and dvds produced by Drury Outdoors and really of all the shows and dvds out there in the hunting industry the Drury's are some of my very favorites and a big part of this is because you know, I really enjoy the tidbits of insight that Mark and his brother Terry offer before heading out on each of their hunts regarding you know why they think a certain time or a certain area might be good for a hunt. It's always really interesting. And I think it's this prediction of deer movement that I want to talk to Mark about today. So it's going to be super interesting. I'm excited about it. But before we get to all that, my co-host Dan and I need to hash a few things out. So, Dan, I understand that you want to take me up on a bet. Oh, yes, I do. I am. I'm game for it. But first, you need to tell everybody what the bet is. Yeah. So, I don't even know how this came came to be. But I was just thinking about trail camera pictures and how I'm excited to see my pictures from Ohio and put some cameras up in Iowa and all that. And I got to thinking, you know, there's a pretty good chance that I could have a good buck on camera. And I'm thinking I might be able to upstage my buddy in Iowa for once and maybe get a bigger buck on trail camera. So my bet to you, 
that I sent via Twitter the other night was that I think that I will get a larger, and we're, I think we'll go by just gross score, gross Boone and Crockett score, a higher scoring buck on trial camera this summer than you will. I'm betting you that I will. Okay. And I accept that bet. Now, are we talking this summer, meaning August 31st is when the summer officially ends, or if the picture is still in velvet, or how are we, what's the cutoff date? That's a good question. Let's, uh, let's say velvet. Velvet. Okay. The largest velvet buck. Yep. And, uh, and I'm making, <laughs> I'm making this bet, knowing full well I'm probably going to lose. <laughs> hey, but you got it. You got a stud last year who has potential. Yeah. On your on your cameras. So, although I probably will beat you, you have a good chance. I'm really making this bet out of like pure cockiness. You know, well, not even that. Just like ridiculous optimism, and I'm hoping that by virtue of this bet, somehow it'll miraculously come to be. But uh. It's it's definitely not going to happen, in Michigan. I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, I I hope it's I hope it I hope it happens for you. I really hope you win. Yeah, 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 me too. Can I tell you about a little more news on trail camera front, really fast? Yeah, one got hit by another tractor. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not much better than that. I had another friend go check my other camera I have on this one property, and it was taking pictures, but. All it took pictures of for eight weeks was does and year and a half old bucks. Not a single good buck. In and that's two in months. Michigan. And that's in Michigan. On so, a property that is a pretty good Michigan property. So your only hope, as far as this bet is concerned, is your Ohio property. Yeah. Or when I stop in Iowa on the way home in early August, I am going to put a camera up there. Okay. And uh, so that that's total wild card. I have no it because I don't even know where I'm hunting yet. So it's going to be just knocking on doors and hoping to get lucky. But so I will have a small chance in Iowa, hopefully. But really, Ohio is where it's at because, you know, this year I've got three bucks, at least that I think should be around. They were around at the end of last season. Three bucks last year that would be, should be over Boone and Crockett this year. So wow. three over Booner. Yeah. Three. There should be three booners that were on the property a decent bit last year that I believe all three of them made it till the end of the season. So hopefully they'll be sticking around. Now, not that they're actually like, you know, on my property all the time, but I had pictures of them throughout the year at different times. So nice. In velvet? Uh, in velvet and in hardhorn. Okay. Um, one of the Bucks, Junkyard, I only had trial camera pictures of him during the summer. I did not see him until. January when I told you about this, you know, earlier in the year when I was driving out of the property, he was in the field and I caught him in the headlights. And so that was the one time we saw him hard horned. And then another one, the beast never got pictures of him during the summer, but during the fall, got a bunch of trail camera pictures of him during daylight and stuff on the property. He's, he's a toad. And then Glenn, you know, you, we all know the story of Glenn. He, I've seen him. I've got pictures of him in the summer and the fall all the time. So those are the boys I'm waiting for. Nice. Nice. I just had an idea pop into my head. Mm-hmm. Okay. The biggest buck on trail camera by the time we leave to go to Idaho. All right. And the winner of the bet, this is just one option. The winner of the bet gets first stock. Hmm. I like it. I mean, it just, 
I guess it just depends. We haven't even talked about how we're going to do all that, and even if we're going to be sitting together and stalking the same deer and all that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, makes, that brings a whole bunch of different questions. I like it. It's an interesting idea. Maybe that's an, a secondary reward, and then we've got something like more immediate. Okay. Okay. Um, what are you thinking? Like, all right. I would say if I win, I want two things. Can I ask for two things? You can ask for two things. Is, right. Are they sexual in nature? <laughs> <laughs> well. Because <laughs> the, the answer then would be maybe. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, radar. Radar. There we go. Yeah. Here we got to change our, our, our rating on iTunes now. <laughs> no, they will not be anything inappropriate. Okay. All I want is if I win, you have got to wear a Michigan State hat during the rut on film for at least two days. Oh, and, oh my God. And I want a six-pack of some kind of beer of my choosing on our trip. What do you think? <laughs> there's, there's certain lines a man does not cross <laughs> in, in Iowa, especially, because we don't have any pro teams of any sort. So right. we're... We're diehard, you know, either Iowa State or majority of us, the good ones anyway, are Iowa Hawkeye fans. <laughs> so, my Lord, I knew do I have to tough. buy the hat or are you going to give it to me? I'll supply the hat. Okay, because I, I would say no if I had to buy it. <laughs> okay. So, so you'll take That's, me up on uh, it? Mm, and a six-pack, right? Yeah, and a six-pack. Okay. All right. I... Here's me reaching through our microphones and shaking your hand on this bet. Okay. Now let's hear about your end. If, if you win, what okay. do you win? I kind of like your bet, but because I like to speak what's on my mind, I'm thinking if I win, I get to host and you are my co-host for <laughs> one episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast. And if I can get a guest in my choice of my choice. Ugh. You're not going to bring that one. <laughs> you're not going to bring that one wrestler on, are you? Hey, hey! Don't talk down to Dan Gable. I'm, he can hear us right now. He oh. taught Chuck Norris everything he knows. How about how about I agree? You can host the podcast. Okay. We have to come to an agreement on the on the guest. Okay, I'll agree to that. Okay. <laughs> I'll agree to that. I like it. It can't be like Ric Flair. <laughs> I just never know. Like you could, <laughs> with, <laughs> I just cannot imagine who you might bring on. <laughs> okay. So it, we can agree that I can host one show. We have to, the, the guest cannot be a surprise. You, <laughs> and you have to agree to it? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Way too much giggling at the beginning of this podcast, Dan. <laughs> oh yeah. We've got a serious we've got a serious topic to talk about today though. I know. We got we've got a good talk, a good conversation today. And this guest should not be taken lightly. No, no, that's why the beginning of this podcast is <laughs> you know, not we're, going we're to be like the rest of the podcast. Three sixty yeah, right we're now. We're turn three sixty right now and we're going to have on the show who many people refer to as the mad scientist. Have you heard that one before, Dan? The mad, I have not heard that he's a mad scientist. Yeah, no. pe- 
I've heard people call Mark the mad scientist because he's all about these details and looking at all these little tiny things, whether it be related to weather or barometer or all these different little factors that might impact deer movement and utilize all that information to put together a perfect plan. And so that's really what I want to dig into with, with Mark. I want to hear about all of his ideas and theories and opinions about how all these different factors and conditions might allow us to predict you know, when and where deer will be moving. So I'm pretty excited about it. What about you? I really think that Mark is going to be, a, this podcast is going to be a great follow-up to last week's podcast because we talked a lot about high-pressure deer uh, hunting and how some of these factors play into that. And I think this is going to be just further detail of of what a little bit of what we covered last week. Yeah, you're right. I think it's going to be a nice compliment to that. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe we, we quit beating around the bush. We stop giggling like little girls over there, over here. And we, uh, we get Mark on the line to talk about some serious deer stuff. I agree. All right, let's get Mark on the line. All right. With us on the line now is Mark Drury. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. We are, you know, we were just talking about how excited we are to have you here with us because, you know, me in particular, I've been following your DVDs for a long time now, and I've always been intrigued by some of the things that go into your thought process before you go out hunting. And so that's really what I wanted to drill into today was, was what it is you're thinking about before you go out and hunt and what allows you to, to some degree, predict deer movement. But really quickly, before we get into the good stuff, you know, I don't think there's many people who aren't familiar with who you are in Drury Outdoors, but just for the few that maybe are, could you give us just a little bit of background about maybe how you and your brother came to start Drury Outdoors and, and how this all came to be where you are now? You bet. We started uh, Drury Outdoors in 1989, and uh, we went out and bought a, a video camera together. I didn't have enough money to buy it, and I came to Terry, and I said, man, I need some help with this new new little project here. I need half the money, though. And he said, sure, man, sounds good. So. We bought a camera half and half, and Drury Outdoors was born. And in fact, back in that early days, we were going to call it D&D Outdoors. At the same time, I was working and calling for, working for and calling for Will Primos with uh, Primos Game Calls. And uh, talked to Will and told him what we were getting ready to do. He goes, don't call it D&D Outdoors. He goes, man, make sure you use your name. And I said, okay, we'll do it. So we actually had the check credit and everything else. So we changed it from D&D Outdoors to Drury Outdoors on, on Will's, Will's advice. So that was uh, some very good advice early on in the process. But we started back in 1989. We started doing turkey uh, videos. And back then, everything was VHS. We did about six or seven of those. Then we did uh, whitetails. And then eventually we evolved into DVDs. And then we started doing television. So it's been one long, slow evolution through 27 years, and it got us to where we're at today, and we're, we're so thankful we started back when we did, uh, because I think it would be challenging to be in this industry without having the history that we have behind us. Yeah, you guys definitely do have um, quite a leg up on a lot of guys now today, since you have that history and that experience, and you've really helped grow this media industry into what it is now, To uh, you know in a lot of ways. 
Um, that's pretty neat. I'm excited that uh, that you guys have continued to do what you do and that you keep innovating. I've always been impressed by the fact that your your production work on the on the films and the DVDs continues to improve, and and now you guys have the streaming videos available online, which is nice for those of us uh, who just you know want to grab it on the go on our laptops and stuff. So it's been neat to see that evolution continue. Now, what I think. All of us really want to talk about, though, is we want to pick your brain, Mark. Um, I, I don't know where I heard it. Maybe it was from Terry or Matt or someone had referred to you as the mad scientist. And we were really hoping that you, the mad scientist, can help us understand a lot of things about deer behavior. Because, as you know and Dan knows, they can trick us up a lot. And they can be hard to understand at times. And sometimes we probably think they're smarter than they are. But there are certain factors and conditions and patterns that I think that we can start to understand and use in our you know, using our favor when we hunt. And so what I first am curious about, Mark, is when you are deciding to go out to hunt, you know, it's in the morning or the evening before an evening sit, and you're sitting there in your home, what is your thought process before going out on a given hunt? What are the things you're thinking through and the factors that you're considering when choosing where and when to hunt? Well, those those vary greatly based on the time of the year. It's one of the reasons we did the show 13 where we broke down the entire whitetail season as it, as it is here in the Midwest. It starts September 15th in Missouri and Octo- or October 1 in Iowa and Illinois. But we wanted to break it down because our thought process changes drastically depending on what phase the whitetails are in. And we sat down and looked at the full season, and we broke it down date by date when we thought there were light switch events to where the deer changed in their behaviors and in their patterns and so on and so forth. And when we got done with that breaking the entire season down, we came up with 13 different phases. And we said, you know what, that'd be a pretty cool show. So it really depends on the time of the year, uh, the basics, you know, the once over each and every single day. And it's generally two or three days out in, out in front. I'm looking at weather predictors more than anything else. And I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at the highs as they compare to the average highs that time of the year. I'm going to look at wind speed. I'm going to look at wind direction. And more, any, more than anything else, I'm going to look at barometric pressure. In my opinion, the number one predictor of deer movement, regardless of the phase of the season, is the barometric pressure. Those are the things that I look at the most on any given hunt. Now, depending on what phase it is, there are other things that I look into. Uh, and that varies literally day by day. So it, it's hard to break it all down in, in one, one answer, frankly. Yeah, well, that's perfect, though, because you just gave me the, the the fuel I need for the next 20 questions I think I have because I, I want details on all these things. And the last factor you mentioned, barometric pressure, that's one of those factors that I think confuses a lot of people. We hear about it a lot, but I don't know if many folks, or maybe even I don't, 100% fully understand the effect. Can you walk us through in detail why you think that pressure change affects deer, and then what do we need to know as hunters? What are the changes we need to be looking for, and how should that translate into when we hunt? Well, it's something I started studying really intensely probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Like, you know, there were always these bumper days where you would see so many deer, and uh, it often correlated with super, super high pressure. Or those were the best days, you know? So I was like, man, big high-pressure day, let's get out there. And then I started studying it and breaking it down day by day, looking at the barometric pressure as it pertained to what I saw that day in the field. And a few things started to ring true. If, it, it depends a little bit on what is 
standard pressure given that time of the year? In other words, high pressure during the early part of the season, like say from September 15th to October 15th, might be just above 30.1 or 30.00. However, during the latter part, when the atmosphere is cooling down and you know you get high pressure readings up above 30.3 or 30.4, high pressure is defined differently. You know, 30.1 at the front end of the season is high. 30.1 at the rear end of the season is just about average to below average pressure. So it's relative to the time of the year, first of all. As the Earth's atmosphere cools as we head into the winter, the higher the pressure, the the better the movement. You know, I saw last year pressure readings of 30.6. One day I think I saw 30.7, if I recall. And there were probably, if I recall, there were, Three or four different days where we set record high pressures for the date period last fall. Over and all, over and above all, last 2014 was the highest pressured fall I'd ever seen, and the deer moved like crazy. So the best day to hunt high pressure is the first day it hits, and the movement will diminish uh, every day thereafter that. But they will still move very well, provided that it stays high relative to the to the date range that you're talking about. In other words, if it's September 15th and the, the predictor shows 30.1 on the opening day and it's on the rise and it goes up to about 30.2 and it levels out for a day or two and then all of a sudden it drops, those first first three days where it's fairly high, they're going to move fairly well. And then when it drops back off, you can almost bank on the fact that that movement's going to slow down. You can just about write it down. And that, that movement just follows that, that pressure uh, much like the stock market kicker goes up and down, the deer movement follows that pressure just the same way. Wow. And is that typically based on a weather pattern or um, like a cold front coming through where the, the, the pressure changes like that? Sure. You can look at the map and look where all the, you know, you think about watching the weather as a kid. You know, it's different now because everybody gets their weather from their handheld device where, but as a kid, remember watching the big weather map and they have the big L's and big H's all over the place. Well, if mm-hmm. you can find a map that shows you that now, follow those H's when they come through, man, that's when the pressure is, is on the rise and, and rising. And generally, yes, it does often follow a cold trend often. Now does, you said, you know, the high relatively high is when the high movement's going to be happening, but does that mean that the, the, the increase in movement is going to happen as the pressure starts rising? So maybe you have a super high day on Friday, but Wednesday and Thursday it's it's rising. Are those days going to be still pretty good too, or is it really it's, once it peaks that's your best and then it just declines from there? It, a lot of that's going to depend on wind speed and sun. Uh, I hate clouds regardless of the time of the year. I don't like them at any time throughout the fall. It seems to subdue deer even on high-pressure days. Uh, it'll make them move later. It makes them a little bit more lethargic. I love sunny days. Uh, I love wind speeds from anywhere from about 10 to 15. If I had an optimum wind speed, I hate wind speeds that are really, really low. Even on high pressure, if you get wind speeds that are like five mile an hour or below, it seems to put the deer in a different demeanor. They are often, often more relaxed on a higher wind speed day than they are on a low wind speed day. I still don't know why that is, but they are totally wicked out when that wind speed is, is below five mile an hour, just totally nervous. Uh, you get a, uh, uh, really it's like eight or nine mile an hour up to about 13 to 15 and they're so relaxed. They don't raise their head. They're coming out feeding and it's uh, the optimum day. Is there a wind speed that you, that you will say, all right, that's just too much. 
Uh, it's probably kicking up around 30 before she gets too much. It's, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I, I Very seldom have I seen high winds keep them down. Uh, now, they will go down in topography. Uh, so when I get the high winds, I go down. I go somewhere in those lower cracks. That's something we noticed, gosh, two decades ago probably. The higher the wind, the lower the topography you must sit. Those high ridges sometimes, uh, A, they're rough on you, and B, they're, they're rough on the deer. They just, they, they'll do whatever they can to stay out of the wind. Huh. So another thing with wind for you that I've noticed, um, in addition to the um, speed of the wind, I've heard before you mention the fact that you like certain changes in wind direction. I think I heard you say once before, numerous times before, that you like the first south wind after a lot of norths. Is that accurate? And if not, can you share with us what types of direction it's, changes help? It's 100% accurate, particularly when the temperature differential from the average of that period is drastic. In other words, if the average high uh, for that time of the year is 50, and you have days that are in the 20s, you know, if it's a departure by 30 degrees, that is not normal to them. And that, that'll actually lock them up sometimes, even with high pressure. But look out that first south wind, the first day that it warms up, it often is accompanying the highest of pressure because it's the back end of that high and it'll kick from the north back out to the south. If you have two or three northerly days in that first south day, that high pressure day, look out. It is one of the best triggers for daylight activity that there is in the natural world. Yeah, so I, I just love all these little. I don't, I don't think many people take notice of these things, and I, I keep on hearing you and Terry mention it, and I'm glad to hear a little more detail about because I've always been kind of fascinated by it, but wanted to better understand it. Are there any other wind direction triggers other than that first south? Absolutely. You know, I think what I always look for is change in the wind direction. And one of the most drastic is when there's a bunch of north and it switches to south because that oftentimes accompanies the highest pressure as well. But anytime there's a change, I like it. I like the first east. I like the first west. I like the first north. I like the first south. And if, if you look at your wind predictor and you look at it over a long duration, say you're going on a four- or five-day hunt and you got all south, chances are the moon is going to be fair to poor. However, if you've got a change each and every day that, a comp that is also accompanied by high pressure, you're probably going to see some pretty good deer movement, especially if it's sunny, if that makes sense. So I like change in wind direction. Always love change in direction. The worst case scenario is stale air or consistent air, or patterns that don't change. Pressure hits 30.0 and stays there. Or even worse, 29.9 and stays there for four days with a south wind. I mean, the, the movement will just diminish day by day by day. It'll get later, add clouds to that. It makes it worse. Um, and and keep in mind, I'm trying to predict deer movement in general, but more importantly, mature buck movement. So I'm dealing with trends and tendencies that give me just a little bit of an edge to actually go out and see a deer that's four and a half or older. Uh, you can go out just about any day and see does and fawns. But I'm talking about triggers that make mature bucks move and move during daylight. If you watch your trail photos, then you can go through a camera and go through, you know, a thousand photos, and there'll be one day, man, there was big bucks on their feet everywhere. Start correlating that back to the weather on that particular day in your area, and you'll start to see trends that develop through time. And it, it's taken us years to kind of study this stuff, but there are definitely triggers that 
have more mature bucks on their feet. Again, it's, it's trends and it's tendencies. It's not a, a foolproof method, but it sure does help slant the odds in your favor of scoring or seeing deer on their feet. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the fun of it too, is just trying to put those chess pieces in the right places and figure out how all these little different little triggers might add up to getting that four and a half year old or five and a half year old to finally move a little bit before dark. Um, and, Absolutely. and one of those factors that I know you key in on, and I certainly do too, and we've kind of danced around and talked about it in relation to a lot of these things, but it's just temperature. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, all the different factors related to temperature that you take into account when thinking through these different triggers? Well, I mean, they're, their system and their coats are made for cooler weather once you get into the fall of the year. And once that winter coat comes on, by and large, they're ready for winter. And one thing that is going to absolutely positively subdue deer movement are warm temperatures. You can just bank on it, man. I absolutely dread seeing a warming trend with with warm temperatures that stick around for a week. I mean, you can literally steal the rut right away with a warm mid-November or a warm early November. Uh, you have to look at the average temperature for the range. And if the average highs are normally 50 and you're looking at 65 or 70, you can just about bet that deer movement is going to come down to a screeching halt. If it's hotter than that yet, don't even waste your time. I mean, it's the rut. Anything can happen and you can go out and, and succeed. But man, warm temperatures are just a kiss of death for deer movement. They just absolutely are. You got to have cold temperatures. And what I like to look at is what's the average temperature for the range, and I like to see the temperature, the daytime highs at that or below. If they're 10 to 15 below average, you're generally going to see fairly good movement. I, I love it when it's just below average. If it gets too far below average, it can actually subdue them just a little bit, depending on the time of the year or what phase you're in. But when it gets too cold and brutally cold, that can actually subdue them just a little bit, particularly in the earlier part of the season. Did you did you find that to be true this past season in the Midwest when we had a really cold November? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had a cold November and it moved like crazy, and it was coupled with high pressure. Uh, the, the other thing that they are awesome at doing is adjusting, acclimating. You know, like if if there's a big cold front coming in, and it say it's been 60 for the past 10 days, and it's going to drop off with highs in the 30s. That first cold day, they may not move as well. But by day two, three, or four, they've acclimated and they'll move like crazy if, it, if it's high pressure. So is that your, you know, I'm curious about your typical predictions related when a front hits. Are you usually seeing that you see the best movement the day after or day after the day after and a couple of days after that? I've always heard and I've seen to some degree, it seems like there seems to be some increased movement just before the front hits too. But what do you see being the most common reaction? Generally, it, it, there's so many variables. It's hard to predict how much wind speed with that front. Uh, how big was the drop in temperature? What was the change in pressure? All those things come into it. Uh, every front is not created equal. Some of them don't create any deer movement whatsoever. Those weak fronts, uh, they generally don't, don't really do a lot. But those big fronts, you can bet they're going to do a lot. And it's generally day one, two, or three that it's it's gonna they're gonna move the most, and that depends on wind speed and pressure and cloud cover. All three of those variables will dictate which day is the best. Often I find that it's day two when the wind drops just a little bit from that. You know, if the northerly comes in at 25 mile an hour for 
for the first day. The second day, when it's like 12 to 15 mile an hour, the cloud front is through, and you know your gear just going to move better that day on day two than than on day one because the pressure's often a little bit higher on day two as well. Hmm. But it, it can depend when the front hits. If it hits during the middle of the night, that's drastically different than if it hits at noon. All that stuff comes into play, so you just have to watch it and see how it affects your your deer herd. I like a front that happens sometime in the middle of the day so that the afternoon movement is quite good. We are best in and around our food plot, and I like fronts that make them move to the feed. Um, one thing is for sure, morning movement is always better the first morning of the front, regardless of wind speed. The first day that it comes through that first north, they will move better that morning than any other morning. Interesting. That makes sense. Now, when you said you like a front that hits in the middle of the day, you're, I think if I understood correctly, your reasoning is that if it hits during the middle of the day, they're going to trigger right away that evening. And then if there's a front that hits rather instead overnight, it's more likely going to trigger in the morning. And you're just saying that you would rather have that first hit during your evening hunt. Is that right? I would. Yeah, that's my preference. I mean, I'll take it when I can get it. I love fronts, uh, but I'll take it when I can get it. Okay. Now I want to go off on a brief tangent here. Um, because Dan and I, over the past weeks and really the last year or two we've been doing this, we have an ongoing debate about morning hunts. And we asked this to our guests last week, and now you, you just briefly mentioned this, and it made me think about it. So I want to get your opinion real fast. Um, hunting mornings in October, in general, is that something you would be for or against? I will hunt every first morning of the front and none of the others until the latter part of October. Then I will hunt every morning until about Thanksgiving. Okay. And can you, so can you explain to us why you don't hunt all those other mornings in October? A lack of movement and spooking deer getting into their bedroom. They're not moving very far for the most part. It's an afternoon game. I mean, their afternoon is, is like our morning, you know, that they've been bedded all day. That's when they get up and by early morning, they're going back to bed. Uh, the first morning, the front is awesome, regardless of what the date is in October. It is amazing. That first North northerly morning, I don't care if it's October 2nd or 14th or 15th, right in the middle of the low, that morning will be phenomenal, guaranteed. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. I think it, it continues to evolve me and Dan's thoughts and opinions on this too, hearing these different perspectives, and that makes a lot of sense waiting for the fronts. I tend to do that a lot when it comes to even the evening hunts, and it makes sense that those morning hunts could really still be great even early on with that right. Oh, they're rocking, man. That first morning is awesome. Yeah, it's that's... just awesome, and they're, they're in a good mood, and they're moving around. And What happens is they stay on the feed later, right? So they're late coming back to bed. And now this is provided you're in the right spot. You know, you can go goof any hunt up by hunting the wrong place at the wrong time. It's all about trying to get the right place at the right time. But generally, they're on the food later, and then they're going to be later coming back to bed. So therefore, you're going to see daylight activity, whereas most mornings, uh, without that front, they're at bed or already bedded by the time it's daybreak. That's my experience in, in October. Yeah. So on on that particular instance, are you going to be hunting near the bedding area where they're coming back, or are you going to be hunting some kind of transition or pinch point to catch them coming back to their bed? Depends on the mass crop that year. If there's a mass crop, I'm going to be somewhere on an, on an oak flat or somewhere where there's acorns because they're phenomenal throughout October. Uh, on the cold fronts, if there's not much of a mass crop, I'm probably going to be not far off of a food plot 
in a known bedding area because they're just not moving very far off of where their, their primary food source is. What about specifically a morning hunt? That's what I was talking about. Oh, okay. I gotcha. That's, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah. In the morning, that's where I would go. In in October for those types of hunts, how early are you going to be getting into your stands in the morning? Oh, did I lose you? Hello? Yep. Can you hear me, Mark? Oh, there you are. Okay. Yep. Was just curious for those morning hunts in October. How early are you trying to get into your stand in the morning? Uh, fairly early. It's 30 minutes before the first thought of like, I, they're just not far. They're not moving very far. So you better use the cover of darkness. And if you're, if you're, you, you get away with so much more during the cover of darkness than you do, even at the first hint of light, it's so much easier to blow deer out at the first hint of light than when it's black dark. Did you ever notice that? Like if you go in your stand and it's black dark, one might bounce 30 or 40 yards, but yet when it gets light, you still see that deer. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're climbing up and there's a little light, you're going to blow and plumb out of the country. I love black dark during October. Yeah, d- definitely a much safer approach that way. That's for sure. Much safer. And it's more important then than during the rut. Now I got a question for you. I, you just brought it up um, in one of your last comments about the October lull. All right. So what we've talked about so far is, you know, the barometric pressure, the um, consistent winds, the the first change in a wind direction, the cooler temperatures. Am I to assume that your definition of the October lull is the opposite of all those? Well, the October lull is also what I call the October swell. There's a defined period or a defined phase in the middle part of October where they come out of their feeding pattern that they're into heavily from, you know, from the time they drop the velvet until about October the 10th through the 14th at various year to year when they go into the lull. But from then till about October the 24th or 25th, there is a definitely uh, subdued movement period there in October, unless it's a major cold front. You have to have cold to have a, a decent day, in my opinion. So in those situations where you do get, you know, I'm going to continue to drill on these examples let's say now we're in that dreaded quote-unquote october lull you do get that front is that just a situation where you're going to move into one of your is it, would you move into one of your better stands at that point or even though you have a front you're still going to wait till a better time period maybe later in the year uh, no i'll go into it and, and you have to recognize what's happening during the swell i said they go into it looking one way and they come out looking another way i mean that is the build-up that's the testosterone going from ground zero up to where it peaks to where all the daylight activity happens there during the seeking phase of the pre-rut there in late October. That it, that period, when you do get a cold front, that's when you look back historically at your pictures and you go, where was I getting daylight activity? Or where was I getting a certain bucks picture a lot during this date range? Chances are it's in and around the scrape. We always transition all of our cameras off of travel or food during the greener pastures phase, when we go into the October low, that's the time we transition every camera we have to scrape because scrapes are going to absolutely light up during that phase. And you can go in the middle part of October. In fact, it is the best time to hunt scrapes is during the low, but you need a cold front to actually get one on his feet moving. And so now that you brought up trail cameras, can you give us a little bit more detail in regards to how you are specifically using trail cameras to add another piece to this puzzle as you're trying to predict when and where you need to be. would love to hear your, you know, trial camera one-on-one in regards to how you use them. 
Well, it's to me, it's the biggest evolution and the biggest reason that Terry and I uh, are able to have the theories we have. Uh, it's based on the data we learn, not from our observations in the field. I mean, that's a big part of it, but it's the data that we take when we're interpreting all the movement patterns within the trail photos. As we watch a card, and he and I are the same way, I won't look at a card unless it is picture by picture. I, I will not put them all up on screen and just pick out the bucks. I sit there and look at the days come and go. I have a, a, a program from Reconics called Buck View, and I sit there and I watch the whole card, and I watch every day, and boom, when I see those days where they move, I look at what happened to the barometric pressure. I look at the, the sunlight. I look at the daytime highs, the wind speeds from that day. So I'm correlating the weather, not only the information that's on the, the picture that a lot of these cameras will give you, but I'm also watching my computer at the same time to see what event happened that day. By doing that each and every year, you can learn when deer are going to move the following year. And consequently, when I'm scouting a particular area with a camera, I'm more often scouting for next year than I am for this year. Because more often than not, when you sit down to look at a card, the information you garner from that card is too late. You can just about write that down. Like, what you saw already happened. That doesn't mean it's about to happen because they're about to switch patterns and go do something else. It is much better to look at data data, and realize that you're looking at something that's going to help you in the future as opposed to help you currently. Hmm. That's a great point. So are you, so I think you mentioned this, but are you, you know, when you're shifting into a new phase, like you mentioned, or a front hits, you're going back there and sorting through old photos to try to understand what the deer will generally do in that type of situation? Absolutely. I'm looking at a particular buck, what he did on that day. I mean, you can absolutely murder him by watching that. It's amazing how habitual they are, not only in their patterns, their bedrooms, the scrapes they hit, the direction of travel, everything about that deer. You can learn a deer. It's one of the reasons you get better and better at hunting a deer, provided he remains alive. If you get history on him for two or three years, you can kill that deer by the time he's five or six. Yeah. I love the sounds of that because I've got a couple bucks like that that I know pretty well. And uh, finally getting to the point where I have that history with him to uh, to close the deal, hopefully. So, given Study that... those previous year's pictures. I killed a deer this past year by the name of Pincher Creek, and I had a great photo library of him from three and a half through five and a half. I studied every single picture I had of that deer over and over and over and over, looking for one little... One little uh, what do you want to say, crevice, or one little hitch in his giddy-up, one way that I might be able to kill him. And I finally found a, a camera where I was getting so many daylights in him each and every year in and around Halloween. Sure enough, it needed a north wind. I got a north wind on the 30th or 31st, went in there, and spent the entire day in the tree with the exception of about an hour and a half and watched that deer the entire day. He literally didn't leave that bedroom, and I finally arrowed him that afternoon at like 2 or 2.30 or something. I mean, it was, it was worked to perfection. Is there anything more rewarding as a deer hunter than to find something like that, go in on that hunch and have it actually work out? Nothing, because more often than not, you don't, right? right. You know, I mean, it's, uh, more often than not, you're, you're batting about 50, you know, in, in uh, major leagues, what it was that Ted Williams said, you know, two-thirds of the time you fail. Well, in deer hunting, my goodness, 95% of the time you fail when you're not mature deer. It might be higher than that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's impossible to see a mature buck on his feet and get an arrow through. And it's not impossible, but it's improbable. It's very difficult to get a mature buck within bow range, particularly one that you set out to kill. They are almost impossible. Yeah, and that's what keeps us uh, dreaming about them every night. That's for sure. So are you, are it you is, keep, man. 
are you keeping a, a log like um, of wind directions and, and like, or, or a map or, or some kind of personal data gathering system that you've made up over the years to allow you to go back and say, okay, last year um, on this stand, I had this wind and my trail camera showed this and, and anything like that? Uh, no, what I always do is cross-reference my pictures and the trends that I see within the pictures on certain days to the weather history. I use wonderground.com. And it's uh, W-U-N-D-E-R-G-R-O-U-N-D.com. And I can take a look at a certain day on Wonderground.com, and it'll give me everything you want to know about that day. So I don't write it down because it's all on the computer. And the rest of the information that I need is all on the cameras. It gives me, you know, it give me the date, the time, the moon phase, the temperature. All that data is right there with the picture with the kind. Nice. So it, you mentioned that you're using tra- trail cameras primarily to look back in previous years to then try to predict what might happen now. But is there any situation where you will use recent trail camera information to inform a, a hunt this season? And what would that specific situation the longer, be? The longer phases, yes. The longer phases where they get into a habitual pattern and they stay there. Like uh, the first phase there, we call it a new beginning, September 15th through September 25th. They're dynamite then because the bucks are doing the same thing every night. You can use summer observation or summer pictures to go in and kill a deer. The same holds true for the next phase, greener pastures, which is like September 25th or 26th, all the way up till the start of the lull, which is, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th of October, somewhere in there, varies by year. Those two phases, if you can find a buck, you can kill him based on using your pictures, provided that you don't goof up and run him out of there. It is, it's a nightmare. When you got a buck on an early season food pattern and you bump him, I move on to the next buck. I just, I just have had bad luck if I'm on a mature deer and I, and I goof him up, he's, something's going to change. So I switched to, to option number two. You yeah. got to make sure your ingress and egress is perfect. It's one of the reasons we don't hunt mornings early part of the season. We never hunt them unless it's a major cold front. And then even then, if I'm on a buck, I'm probably going to go hunt somewhere else and take a flyer on some other buck and wait till that afternoon to go in and hunt. And if I know he's coming to a food plot, I just don't want to run him out because my odds are so much higher in the evening. So what about then checking trail cameras at that time of year? How are you able to do that, or do you do that at all during that time of the year in some way to minimize the chances of spooking them? I check them as if I'm going in to hunt it. You know, like I'll do it midday on the right wind, um, dressed in full, scent-free gear, and I'll sneak in slow like I'm stalking a mule deer in his bed, grab the card, switch it out, and get out. And you, you just can't bump them. They're not far. That's the thing. Early part of the season. And I, that's the other thing. When you set your camera up, you got to think ahead and go, okay, can I get to this camera and check it without bumping a single deer? Those spots are hard to find, but when you find them, they're magic. Yeah. So uh, we heard another guest we had from Southern Iowa um, a while back had mentioned a totally different theory to checking his cameras. And it was kind of surprising to me and Dan, but there's, there's something to be said, and I'm curious your opinion on it. Um, his theory was that if you go in there enough consistently every week, you go check that camera in the middle of the summer, in September, in October, in November, and if you do it enough, they develop some type of habituation to it and don't associate that with danger because they're used to the same thing happening over and over. Can you see that working? I, I don't do it enough to prove or disprove that theory. Um I, you know, I just kind of depend on what I do, which is check them very irregularly. 
and try to do it on the right wind in the middle part of the day, and I have pretty good luck doing that. My gut tells me that my gut tells me I would not do that. I mean, just based on what I know about deer and bumping them and so on and so forth. Or I guess I'm too scared to try that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just I don't know. It seems like it goes back to my comment a while ago, man. If you bump a mature buck, you're on. It's it's not good in the early part of the season. I can tell you that it is not good, regardless of the reason why you bumped him. Yeah. There's a theory out there um, that has been popularized to some degree called the bump and dump, where you, if you purposely or maybe even accidentally bump one of the deer you're after and you know you bumped him and you saw where he was bedded, the idea is to go right in there where you saw him bedded and hunt it, and sometimes you might catch them coming back to bed. Have you ever thought about that, tried that, or heard about that and seen that to be something that's worth trying if, in the worst-case scenario, you do spook your target buck? Yeah, it's generally by mistake, right? You know, I'm never trying to do the technique, but if I've done that, I have indeed had decent luck going back in there and seeing that deer. If not that year, perhaps the following year. That's one of those things that you always, like, uh, store that stuff away in your file cabinet in your head. Man, I bumped this deer on a certain date range, and he was bedded down in this crevice or up on that point. Those things can help you in the future. All right, now, before we move on to my next question for Mark, We need to pause briefly for a quick word from our partners at Sitka Gear. And today in our conversation with Sitka product category leader Dennis Zuck, we're going to step away from actually talking about Sitka and instead just learn a little bit about the importance of certain aspects of our hunting clothing. In particular, I asked Dennis about base layers and why they're so important for whitetail hunters. Here's Dennis. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I, you know, I think really amongst whitetail hunters is widely sometimes misunderstood and why would I need it? And, you know, it really comes down to, to, to staying comfortable, staying warm, you know? And if you think about staying comfortable, staying warm, you know, that base layer is your first line of defense. It's the first, it's the first thing that touches your skin. And, you know, when you're walking into the stand or, or you're doing different things, you know, moisture builds up and you need to make sure that you're doing everything you can to take that moisture off your skin. And why is that? I mean, so, you know, moisture does a thing, it's, it's actually a conductive robber, so it, it steals your heat and pulls it into those wet areas the longer you allow it to be there. You know, so having that base layer pull that out and move it up into your system so that it can be evaporated and out and, out and away from you um, absolutely will change your comfort. And you may not know why you're cold sitting in a stand. You may be shivering, wondering. Um, a lot of times it's because of this 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 theory, you know, and cottons and some other things just don't have the ability to dry the way that they need to dry or move moisture the way they need to move it so that said then what makes a good base layer a good base layer is something that has a very good uh, wicking capability so something that's going to pull it off your skin i think if you're a white tailor i'm going to tell you that it, it needs some level of scent control because that is absolutely harboring and growing um s- smelly things you know um so i think it's, it's a little bit of those and i think dry time um a base layer can also be very insulative, which gets into the difference of a synthetic and a, maybe a merino. So sometimes, you know, you may be okay with a slower drying base layer, but the warmth, the weight of a merino may, may be worth it. Or it may be earlier in the season where I can't really tolerate, you know, I don't want that wet thing on me forever, and I want a synthetic that's going to drive much faster. So there you have it. And if you're in the market for new base layers, you might just want to check out what Sitka has to offer. And now, back to the show. Yeah, definitely. So 
I want to shift back to our kind of going through factor by factor because there's one big one. It's kind of the elephant in the room for a lot of people that there's a lot of questions, a lot of theories about, and that is how the moon impacts deer movement and specifically moon phases and then moon rising and setting times. I would love to hear your thoughts on how those two things impact deer movement and how you use that to plan your hunts. Absolutely. The, the, my favorite time of each month, regardless of the, of the deer season, if it's September, December, it doesn't matter, is the full moon, the seven days that precede it and the seven days that follow it. My least favorite time and the time that I see the least deer is in and around the dark of the moon. And that flies in the face of a lot of what I read and say, but yeah. we have the history and the, and the, you know, the deer to show it. Um, I can't tell you how many times we've killed a deer in and around that full moon. I mean, it just, to me, weather trumps moon. However, moon can accent weather. Uh, if you've got the right weather and you've got a full moon, chances are you're going to see a lot of deer on their feet. I like afternoon hunting as I lead into the day of the full moon. If you watch the full, the day it's full, say it's full the 10th. If you look at the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th, or even back the 5th or 6th, the moon will be rising in the afternoon. And it's going to rise about 45 minutes later every single day. So your afternoon movement is going to be the earliest on about the 5th or 6th. About the 7th or 8th, it's going to be perfect. And by the time it's full on the 10th, it's going to be just about dwindling down. The moon's going to rise just at the last 30 minutes of daylight. That full moon day, oftentimes the best daylight activity will switch over to mornings as the moon is setting. If you look at the three or four or five days that follow the full moon date, in other words, the 11, 12, 13, 14, those are the, those are the days where it is visibly going to be setting in the sky, and you can see it from your stand. I love morning hunting in and around that falling moon right after the full moon. And again, it, it falls later, 45 minutes every day. So to make sure I'm following here, it's because of the fact there's the full moon, that also coincides with then these rising and setting times of the moon that would be happening during the prime hunting hours, right? As what I've always heard is that you want that moon, you know, in the evenings, you'd like it rising early while you're actually out there. And then the mornings, you'd like to still see it setting during daylight. Is that right? Right. And that occurs the four or five, six days prior to the day it's full. And then the four or five or six days that follow the date of the full moon. If you look at what day it's full, and back up a week, your afternoons are going to be better. If you look at the week that follows the date of the full moon, your mornings are going to tend to be better. Weather will trump all of that. However, the moon can accent weather and make it even better. Interesting. This stuff, this is something that I've really just started to pay attention to the last couple of years. And it, like you mentioned, I think it's, it's, it's an accent factor. It seems to be one of those things that if you're looking for that little extra edge, it might be one of those things that gets the big boy in his feet 10 minutes earlier, which, you know, it's, in this that's case, all you're looking for. that's all you need. It's a, tender, it's a trend or a tendency. It's just one little thing that gets you on his feet just a few minutes earlier. Yeah. So, Speaking of the moon, I know, Dan, I think you had something that you wanted to ask Mark about in relation to the moon. Did you still want to dive into that? No, actually, he just covered it. Oh, he did? Well, perfect. Well, what about how the moon may or may not affect the rut? What are your thoughts on that? Because that's one of those big theories out there where people say that... In, in In my opinion, the rut happens at the exact same time each and every fall. That's why we came up with our 13 phases. What part of it is exposed is based on when the full moon hits within that month. 
based on daylight activity. In other words, if you watch 10 Novembers in a row, you'll be like, well, well, wait a minute, I saw them at the early part of November. This year I saw them in the middle. This year they didn't move till late. And, and then, boom, I'm back to the early part. And, and it's happening at the same time because the fawns hit the ground every year at the same time. But the moon, in my opinion, exposes the daylight portion of it differently each year depending on how the moon falls. That's why you see the variance in ruts that are intense versus not. If it exposes the chasing and the, and the seeking phase, you go, oh, man, it was an awesome rut. However, if the moon exposes the lockdown, you go, oh, this was a terrible rut. And that's, to me, that's the difference, and it's that simple. I loved last year's moon. I absolutely hate the one that's coming up in fall of, of uh, 15. I think it's going to be a very tough, trickly rut because I don't like where the moon falls. Can you explain, can you explain that? When is that moon that you're referencing falling, and why is that, why is that bad? I believe it's full around the 26th, which means you're going to have great afternoon activity the latter part of September, you're going to have great activity leading into the um, the chasing phase there in late October. However, just after that, when you get into November's moon, if it's full, I believe it's the 26th or 27th, I don't know which. You know, if you look at afternoons leading into that full moon, it's horrible. The dark of the moon happens 14 days prior to that. Well, that takes you back to the 12th, and that's prime time, and that's when I see the least deer on their feet during daylight hours. And I can, that's my thoughts historically during the dark of the moon you see the least amount of deer activity during daylight hours so it's almost reversed out in my opinion that's like it's the worst place it could be in the month of november for a great daylight rut right and so you said the dark of the moon is going to be around the 12th you said it'll be 14 days prior to to this 28 day uh, cycle so it'll be about 14 days prior to the full it'll be dark gotcha and it'll be dark for you know 10 days in there, you know, a third of the month we're under a dark moon or predominantly dark. So in that situation, is that going to change how you would hunt that phase of the year, or are you still just going to grind it out how you normally would, just expecting to see a little uh, less I'm still going to grind it out because, to me, they're still doing the same thing year in and year out, so I'm still going to do the same tactic. It's, it's why we did 13. I'm going to do the exact same thing that I do every year, but I'm going to know that I really need a weather front to make these deer move and I'm going to make sure I don't miss any of those weather fronts because they're going to be so vital to seeing daylight activity yeah. so vital I just really dislike this year's moon it's similar to what we had I think a couple or three years ago and the rut was just atrocious add to that EHD and it was like the worst rut ever it was the worst rut I've ever seen was it fall of 12 or fall of 13 one of those was just miserable yeah yeah I think you're bumming a lot of us out Mark <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you got to be smart about it. You got to really look at your weather, and you got to look and make sure you maximize your time out there on those weather fronts. You're still going to have great activity from the fifth through the ninth. I mean, that's good every year, right? But it might only be the first hour and the last hour of the day, as opposed to, you know, the first three hours and the last three hours. It's it's that type of drastic difference. Yeah. So would would you almost recommend someone who had limited vacation time to maybe pay more attention to the last week in October as opposed to the second week in November? I like that last week in October because they're not with the does yet, and I think that is a huge difference when you're trying to kill. And again, everything I get back to is talking about killing a mature deer. If I was just going on an outfitted hunt, and I wanted to see the most deer and have the best chance of seeing a buck, I would book either from the 5th through the 10th of November or the 15th through the 20th. In my opinion, those are the best and highest rates of 
buck activity during daylight hours because that just precedes peak of estrus and it just follows peak of estrus. Those two periods, in my opinion, year in and year out, are the best to bank on. And if I had to bank on one where you could hunt all day and see deer activity all day, it'd be from the 15th of November to about the 19th of November, 14th to the 19th, if I had to just write it down. Those would be the dates. But if you get a warm trend either during either of those, it's going to subdue it and just kill your vacation. Hmm. Yeah, the dreaded rut vacation with a warm front. No, it's <laughs> killer, man. You know, that's why... That's why guys go to outfitters and they go, well, I'll never go back. But, you know, was it the outfitter or was it the weather? You know, the week before, everybody killed. This week, one out of ten killed. I mean, it happens all the time. It's weather-related, man. Weather trumps everything. Yeah. They are a weather-induced uh, movement animal. I mean, it's all about that weather for us. Yep, that's the truth. I guess, you know, this has been fascinating. And the one thing that we've kind of talked about interspersed throughout all these different factors is the time of the year. And you mentioned your show 13 and the fact that you guys broke down the year into 13 different phases. Could you, you know, briefly walk us through what those phases are? We've touched on a few of them, but could you walk us through what those phases are that you guys believe are, you know, distinct and maybe give us a quick, like your one main thing to note about each one of those phases. Is that possible? You know, hold on, let me grab my ladies out one here. I can't do it off the top of my head. <laughs> I can give you my favorites. <laughs> That'll work too. Hold on, I, I do have them broke down here. Let me get to it here just a moment. The first phase is September the 15th, and this just coincides with when the Missouri season opens. It's September 15th through September 4th, uh, 24th, and that's the phase we call the new beginning. Uh, it's, if you're on one, there's a good chance you're going to kill them if you get a weather front. It's all about food source that time of year. It's all about trail pictures and your summer observation, et cetera, et cetera. I love that phase. I also love the phase that follows it, which is greener pastures, September 25th through October the 12th. To me, greener pastures is one of the best phases to kill a mature buck because there's a defoliation that goes on during this phase throughout the Midwest. And I'm only talking in terms of the hunting that I've observed here in Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. When those beans that were planted back in May and June eventually turn from green to brown and defoliate, there is a major switch within the herd to go to the next green food source. And if you've got that green food source close to where you've seen a, a mature buck all summer, you're going to go through what I call green to green transfer. There's a good chance he's going to transfer from that green bean field into your green plot. The difference is the bean field might have been 40 acres and your green field might be one to three acres, a much smaller uh, target area to try and kill that deer. That phase, to me, is one of the best of the whole year. Um, October 13th through the 24th, we talked about the October lull. Tough phase overall. you got to have a cold front and mornings can be quite good. We key in on scrapes with our cameras and with our hunting tactics. We're going to key in on scrapes in and around that, that October law. We still some good deer during that period because they're still on food source and they're not moving very far, but you got to have a weather front in order to do it. Pre-lock, October 25th to November the 1st. To me, this phase is all about killing the oldest, biggest deer in the herd. If you can find him, especially with those historical pictures like we were talking about, you can get on and kill that particular deer this phase. Why? Because it's one of the few phases where that really old deer is actually on his feet. He's looking for the first available doe to give the first hint of estrus. And I don't know that they're really ready to breed yet during this phase, but he's certainly ready to start tending her. 
They may ten, seven to ten days before he breeds her, but you can bet one thing, that oldest buck in the herd is going to be the first one to find the one that's smelling the best. I love that face for a really mature deer. October the, whoop, I skipped the page, hold on. October, or no, the November, where's my page still? The next one would be November the 2nd through about November the 5th. And for whatever reason, I can't find that that page, so I don't know what we named it. I don't know why I lost that page. Pre-lock, and then we get, I think waiting on a front, I forget the name of it, but it's like November the 1st or 2nd through about November the 5th, and to me, that's kind of in between. If you get a weather front, it kicks them off early. If you don't, there's a little bit of a November low, in my opinion, during this phase. I've, I've had some great early Novembers, and I've had some dreadful early Novembers where you think this thing is never going to start. You get this excitement of the flurry of pre-lock in late October, and then you hit the first five days of November, and it's like, what happened? Where'd they all go? And then you just go into a little bit of a lull, and then all of a sudden about the 6th, 7th, 8th, or 9th, buddy, Sadie bar the door. That's one of my favorite windows of opportunity, and it's one that you just can't miss. I like to sit all day, every day, you know, the 6th through the 9th of, of November. You just can't miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go into November 11th through the 15th, and that's lockdown. Uh, all of a sudden, every doe in the herd or the bulk of the does are in estrus. Uh, if you look at the phase that precedes that, it's a bell curve, and they're starting to go into estrus, and there's a lot of flurry of buck activity. A lot of bucks looking for their first available doe, but they're not quite with them yet. You get into the 11th through the 15th, there's does that are in estrus everywhere, when the does come in heat, they often don't move anymore, and all of the bucks that are following them are just standing there staring at them. One hot doe can have five or six bucks locked down on it, and they're allowed to do that three or four days. The phase that follows that, the 16th through the 19th, desperately seeking, is the bottom end of that bell curve, and boom, they've had them, they want them back, and they lost that estrus there they were with, and that phase is one of the best, especially for midday activity. I love 9 to 11, and I love like 1 to 4 o'clock during that particular phase. Then we get into Green Revisited in the latter part of November, November 26th through December the 5th. Bucks, the really, really mature ones, are start coming back to the greenfield looking for does because that's where they're going, and a lot of the bucks are starting back to those greenfields because that's the period where you're having frost morning and night, and you're starting to break those greenfields down. The palatability goes through the roof and there's a lot of deer visiting those green fields. We've killed a lot of big bucks during that phase. December 6th through December the 8th, there's another little bit of a miniature well. It's, uh, it's tough during this particular phase. We call it waiting on a front. If you catch a front, it kicks them into their late-season feed patterns, and, and we have a really good period then. If you want the best overall movement in December, it's December 9th through the 21st, it's called feedback. Awesome, awesome. Good bucks out early. Make sure you understand in the afternoon and make sure you're there early. Then December 22nd to January 15th, slowly but surely, the daylight activity starts to slow down, and you, again, need a front. But that's when you get some of the most drastic weather of the winter, and if you get that, you can kill a big buck if you're on. And it's very similar to the first phase because it's all about food, and they're not bedded very far from it. Awesome. I, uh... I think that was super helpful for a lot of people, I think, because 
trying to understand how to hunt or how to focus your hunting efforts through the, throughout the course of a whole season can be a little bit intimidating, I think, for some guys. So I like the idea of breaking it down that way to kind of simplify it and offer, you know, some, some key things to think about during each part of the year. Um, and you made some great points there. Something you mentioned, though, triggered a memory of sorts. I feel like I remember hearing um, you in the past having talked about certain factors push them to green food sources, certain factors or times of the year push them to grains. So like soybeans or corn or something like that. Is that something that you have a theory on? Uh, yeah, it depends on the phase early in the season. Um, it's all about green, uh, especially after the beans defoliate, it's all about green. But if you get a drastic cold front the early part of the season, they're liable to switch to green very quick on you. That's kind of a general rule of thumb. The warmer it is, go to green, the colder it is, go to grain. Um, I love late November for green because they come back to it so readily. However, if you get snowfall and it covers it, that can sometimes make that a challenge. The colder the weather, head to the green. The warmer the weather, head to the green. There you go. That's an easy one to remember. Yep. We killed uh, way kill on January the 11th or 12th or sometime very late of the very season last year. We were on a winter bolstered sugar beet field. And we were lucky we didn't get any snowfall during the latter part of the season or nothing that accumulated. And I'm telling you, those green fields were ridiculous during that particular part of the, of the year, man. They were back on green. And, and in reality, they were eating the bulbs that the green fields had, had created. It was a winter bulge and sugar beets field by Biologic. And, I mean, it was just 30, 40, 50 deer a night. He killed a five-and-a-half-year-old ape that was right at 140, just a beautiful Missouri ape point. That's awesome. Yeah, I gotta love those late season hunts over some type of brassica and things like you'd mentioned there. That is a, a dynamite place to be at that time of year. So yeah, depending on what kind of gun pressure they went through or how much pressure they went through in general, you know, we call it December deer summer. If you get cold fronts and you've got food, it's it's the easiest time to go kill a nice deer or deer in general because they're all stocked into the same food source. You know. Yeah, especially when you have the the best food or the only food left at that point too. Yep, correct. So, Dan, do you have uh, any final question or questions for Mark before we wrap this up? Because we are coming up on time. You know, I I I think that today we have been we've gotten more information in such a small amount of time that I think our listeners are going to be happy with with what we what what we've got, what, what we're going to give them. I'll just put it to you that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I have, I have my own notes in front of me, like, okay, high pressure plus 15 mile an hour winds plus first change in the wind direction plus cool temperatures equals <laughs> Boone and Crockett buck. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I wish it was that easy. They're either going to like it or they're going to turn it off and go, man, that's confusing. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, you know, and I don't, I try not to be confusing, but it's not a simple equation uh it's just not there's so many factors that go into each and every hunt and you just have to pay so much attention to i mean what phase you're in where they're bedded what food source it is the wind speed the wind direction the barometric pressure the cloud cover i mean even i just forget some days to look at every single aspect and i'll look at pressure and wind speed and i'll tell late oh man we're going to see them tonight and then we get out there and we have clouds all evening we don't see a deer and i'll be like oh i forgot to look at cloud cover i mean that's that's a deal breaker for deer movement, in my opinion. I, I don't like cloudy days at all. Yeah, I think um, I think like like Dan said, an overwhelming 
but fascinating amount of information. This was exactly what I was hoping for. Um, and it's why I really love hunting mature bucks is because of the fact that there are so many different things. There's so many pieces to this puzzle and it just requires this tremendous attention to detail and problem solving essentially. And, uh, it's just, it gets me, it gets me right, right down there. And I, I can't stop thinking about this stuff. So I, I'm going to take all this to, to heart. Like Dan said, I'm going to be taking a lot of notes when I listen to this again. Um, I got one. You, final you know question. what it's like guys. One, one point I'm not making, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, it's good. It is very, it's very similar to baseball in the, the evolution that baseball has gone through since the advent of Moneyball out in the Oakland A's and the whole sabermetric side of the game where they try to predict tendencies and trends for players for years to come based on previous results. It's very similar to that in deer hunting. It's just taking every single uh, thing that you can analyze and analyzing it about deer in general or a specific deer and then predicting future movement based on the information that you have. It's very similar to that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And similarly, it can get people pretty worked up in, in diving into that. And there there might be, I mean, there is, I've certainly experienced it, a slight um, danger of getting too in the details sometimes and overthinking things maybe, but it's hard to figure out where that fine line is, I imagine. It really is, you know, and I think if someone studied us as, you know, an individual person and what we did on a daily basis, I would bet you there are patterns that we have based on weather. I would almost bet you in that in moon. I yeah. bet we're not too different from the deer. That'd be pretty fascinating. Dan, you want to take up that study? It would be. <laughs> well, I tell you what I am going to do is when my wife uh, starts complaining to me about, hey, you've been in front of the computer for four hours looking at trail camera pictures and then um, – you know, looking at the dates and then looking at the weather, I'm going to blame Mark Drury for that. <laughs> and I, you might get a call from my wife. <laughs> Watch Dude, out. I'll just give her, tra- I'll just give her Tracy's number and they can talk for hours. She <laughs> <laughs> will feel better about you after talking to Tracy. <laughs> yep, there's something about commiserating in that way. <laughs> so because tra- Tracy and I've been married for 26 and it's really about 13 because six months out of the year, she just loses me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, off the grid, sitting there staring at a computer somewhere. Uh huh. I think uh, I think all of our, our wives can probably relate to that to a degree. So, I've got one final question for you, Mark. This has been awesome. We've talked a lot about you know how you're using this information to predict movement of deer in general, and then of a specific deer. And I'm curious, coming into the 2015 season, is there any one special deer that's on your mind that you're hoping to catch this year? No, uh, the lone ten. Yep. Yep. What? If he's there, he's in trouble. What's That's his, my opinion. What's his story? Uh, he is seven and a half this year, and I've got as much history on him as any deer that I've ever had. Um, I feel like we can. I feel like we can take that deer this year, provided we get the weather fronts. I, I think he's he's killable. I've only seen him twice in my year. However, I really haven't hunted in and around his core as much as I'm going to this year. But you know, I just have a good feeling about the Lone Ten. Him and Temptation, both of them are are probably in trouble if we get the right weather that's my gut if they're there if they're still alive so often uh through the years i'll target a certain deer and by the time you kind of figure him out something else kills him it'd be ehd <laughs> or a car or, or a poacher's bullet or they'll disperse i've lost so many deer through the years right when i thought i could go kill them so i probably just jinxed myself on both of those deer <laughs> but i've got a great history on both and if, if they're alive and present accounted for will be will certainly be in the game on on both of them a multitude of times 
That's awesome. Well, I, I hope that I'll be seeing on the Drury Outdoor Journal a picture with you in the Lone Ten uh, coming up here soon. So for anyone that wants more information about your DVDs, your TV shows, all the things that you guys are going and doing, where can they go online to find all that, Mark? Uh, you can check us out at DruryOutdoors.com. Uh, one of the easiest ways to communicate with us is at Drury Outdoors on Facebook or Instagram. Um, or Twitter. We were very active within all the social um, uh, avenues, and you know we're communicating with about six or seven hundred thousand people a day. So uh, we, we post a lot of stuff up. We're going to be following the the rut this year through the 13 phases or the full deer season, I should say. So that's the best way to follow us is Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, probably. Or go onto our journal, man. There's going to be our journal is going to be a whole new vast experience this coming fall. Each, each deer that gets killed throughout the fall goes on the Drury Outdoors Journal at DruryOutdoors.com. And then once you get in there, you're going to have a whole new visual experience once you get into the journal. It's going to be cool. We're working on it right now. It will release in September once the animals start hitting the journal. Very cool. That's been one of those things that I've always uh, followed, and it's it's been neat to be able to see. I can almost predict when things are going to start really start hopping by me in Michigan or Ohio based on when the deer start falling in your journal over in Iowa or Kansas or Missouri because you guys are usually a day or two ahead of us with weather fronts and things, so I can kind yep. of start to see when things are going to hit. So I've always enjoyed checking it out, and uh, I'd recommend anyone listening to do the same. Um, I will make sure to yeah, have so links. Yeah, it, it helps everybody that's east of us, but the people that are west of us going, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're a little behind. Well, we'll make sure to link to all that on the blog post for this podcast. And uh, everyone listening, if you're not already, I'd highly re- recommend checking out Mark's DVDs, his TV shows, the website. It's all great stuff. You guys are really doing some of the best work in the business, Mark. So thanks for doing what you're doing, and thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, man, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All right, good luck this season. Okay, good luck, y'all. Thank you. Wow. That, uh, what do you think about that, Dan? There's a lot to take in there. I tell you what. I'm, my, mind, my mind and brain is full of information right now because, you know, we've talked about this several times before about maybe trying to overanalyze things. But I think what we're doing, you know, as, as far as what stand to hunt on what wind direction and, and, you know, and all these things that we've just, you know, these categories that we've kind of uh, discussed today. And I really think that we're doing it wrong. Our, our focus should be on the little things instead of one big picture. I, I really like I'm to the point now where I'm thinking I'm going to change my the date the dates of my vacation to the second and third week in November. Yeah. Instead, based on, on kind of what he said and, and how, what, what we've learned this, you know, these past four or five podcasts, uh, with the guests and, you know, the, the moon phase and, um, the, the fetal cycle and, and all these things that it's just, it, it, it's, this is opening my brain up to a new way of thinking on how to hunt these animals. Yeah. And that's, that's why I love this. I mean, this is, it's, it can be confusing. It can be enlightening. It can be fascinating. It can be frustrating. It's so many different things, but it's, it's addicting in the end. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And, uh, 
I, I love the detail that Mark can go into on these specific different types of factors and the trends and, and the patterns that he's seen. And of course, you know, these things might be different in different areas and each one of us are in our own unique situation. So, you know, as we've talked about before, it's all about taking all these different ideas that Mark just shared with us and that all of our past podcast guests have shared with us, taking all those different little pieces, applying them to our situation and our circumstances and where we hunt, how we hunt, and figuring out how we can incorporate some of these. Maybe some of these things work with us, some of them don't. And then we find what's the right fit for us personally. And I think that's that's kind of the journey and the evolution that every single one of us as a deer hunter has to go through. And um, I think you and me, you know, we're right in the middle of our own evolution. I'm sure many of our listeners are too. And that's an exciting place to be. Right, exactly. And it's almost like this podcast in particular need, needed needs to come with like a, a warning at the beginning <laughs> because it is going to make me at work tomorrow <laughs> when I should be working. Uh, look at, look at forecasts and moon phases and pressures. Uh, and, and like tonight after I get off the phone with you and after the kids are in bed, I'm going to come d- back down here. I'm going to look at my trail camera dates and I'm going to go back to that, uh, wonderground.com website that he mentioned to look up old historical weather data. I mean, who does that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back at all, but I have been starting to do that. Yeah. And it's fascinating what you can see. Um, and another thing, um, you know, there are a couple different tools out there that make this a little bit easier. Um, trail camera management tools now are starting to come out with some functionality like this. So um, the big three out there are HuntSoft, Deer Lab, and Hunt Force. If you Google any one of those three, they all have varying different features. And I've tried all three of them to some degree. Um, they've all got kind of cool things. They've all got some things I wish could be improved. But they allow you to upload trail camera pictures and then they then associate, they pull in the weather and the wind direction and the moon phase and some of them, even the barometric pressure. So they attack that onto each one of those photos. And then they can even in some of them, deer lab and hunt soft, at least I know for sure you can tag individual bucks. So then you can start saying, okay, I've got three years worth of photos of jawbreaker. And now in this little tool, I can say, okay, filter everything by jawbreaker. And then it's going to show me actually patterns over hundreds of photos and sightings. Wow, 75% of his movement during daylight happened with a southwest wind. And wow, you know, nine out of every 10 encounters I had happened with a high pressure or something like that. And you can start to see some of these things with these tools, whether you do it with an online tool or if you do it manually, you know, looking at the historic weather. I think this is something that if you're serious about hunting mature deer, especially specific deer, this is something you should be doing. The law of averages. Yeah. Yep. Try to try to figure out a few things and identify some trends and patterns and apply it to your future hunts. And eventually, typically, they return to the norm, right? In some to some degree. So. Yeah. So yeah, I love this stuff. Science. <laughs> yep, science. I never got too much into it in high school or before, but now I'm now I'm into it. So right. I don't know, man. I think we've got a lot of uh, late nights of staring at pictures and thinking to do. Well, especially, I, I, I cannot wait to check my trail cameras this weekend. It's, I'm, I'm like watering at the mouth. Yeah. So I'm jealous. I've got one more month. Yeah. We better end this uh, podcast now because your wife wants to go fishing. Yep. And my wife wants me to be a father. 
So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Mine sounds a little bit better at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. Well, yeah, we, we should shut this down. This has been, this has been a lot of great stuff. So hope everyone listening that you enjoyed this and that you were able to take as much from it as me and Dan definitely have. If you did enjoy the show, if you haven't yet, we would love for you to give us a review, a rating review on iTunes. Just give us your honest opinion, whatever it is. We'd love to hear. Uh, it's really quick to do. It takes like less than a minute, but it's super helpful for us to understand, you know, how we're doing. And also for new people trying to, you know, figure out, is this a podcast worth listening to? They check out those reviews. So thanks in advance if you can do that. Speaking of thanks, we of course need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you, thank you. And finally, thank you to all of you for joining us today, for, for sitting through 63 of these episodes, me and Dan, John about deer, and listening and questioning all these great whitetail hunters and hopefully learning a thing or two with us as well. So thanks for being here with us. Have an awesome week. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.